This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Professor Barry Shub is the Chair of the Ministerial Advisory Council on Vaccines and Professor Emeritus of Virology at Fitz University. He is also the founding director of the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. He has been one of the main advisors to the Jewish community throughout this pandemic, and he joins me now to tell me where we are at and what we can expect over the next few weeks. Professor Shrip, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Rish. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you this morning. I know how incredibly busy you are, so I really do appreciate the time. And Professor, um, I remember talking to you right at the beginning of this pandemic and you saying everything is new. We don't know yet how things will unfold. Sixteen odd months later, is everything still new as it develops or are we getting a grip of what's happening? Yeah, Sharice, we are learning as we go. This is new. It's a new disease. The control of the disease and the strategies are also new. We're actually needing to kind of assemble as much scientific knowledge as we can get. And I think this is where our ministerial ministerial advisory committee does come in. We've got about, we've got 17 or 18, depending on if you include observers, members of the ministerial advisory committee. That's our core group. And then in addition to that, there are five work streams. And then we have technical working groups for national, which include national experts, as well as international experts, looking at the various issues which come about. And, uh, you know, there's an enormous amount of scientific literature which is being published on the subject. Um, and many journals are now actually devoting most of their content to, 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 uh, to COVID and to its management. So there's an enormous amount of scientific knowledge which has to be gone through, inspected, digested, uh, and uh, made applicable, particularly to our situation. And uh, different countries have got different unique situations. We've got uh, a fairly unique situation in terms of the variant, which you can, we can talk about just now. So it really requires quite a lot of scientific expertise and a joint meeting of minds because, no, you know, our, our, uh, our MAC, for example, has got expertise from ranging from virology to ethics and epidemiology and clinical medicine and everything in between. So all of this needs to be distilled and made applicable to our situation. And that's where the advice comes from, which eventually gets sent through to the government. Before we go into the details of the vaccinations, etc., what are we seeing different in this third wave that we didn't see previously that took you by surprise? Yeah, I think that's that's a very relevant and very pertinent question because I think what took us by surprise is the extent of the epidemic, number one, because I, I think the general feeling is because we've already gone through two epidemics, the first, well, two waves, um, and there was quite extensive penetration of the virus in the population, we thought that there would be quite uh, an extensive amount of residual immunity. Um, and so this has taken us a little bit, by, the extent has taken us a bit by surprise. That was the one thing. I think the other thing is that up to now, the first and second waves started coastally. They started in the Western Cape. It started something in the Eastern Cape and then spread inland. This is the other way around. It started, in fact, first in the Northern Cape and then spread to the inland provinces, the, the Free State, Northwest, and then, of course, really hit us terribly badly in Gauteng. And uh, where we are now in Gauteng, we are really uh, very, very badly hit, and the Jewish community even worse. Jewish community has never been so severely affected, in the Gauteng, that is, uh, as we are now. 
um, far exceeding the, the second wave and far, far exceeding the first wave. So this, this is really has taken us a bit by surprise. Is it confirmed then that for some reason um, Jewish community is more susceptible to getting COVID? I don't think we're more susceptible. I think there are two things. I think one of them, of course, is our age distribution. And we know that age is such an important determinant of severity. Uh, and, of course, the Jewish community, the age, the median age, is significant higher than the median age of the general population. So I think that's one factor. But I'm sad to say that another factor is also our behavior, our human behavior. And uh, we know that human behavior is a major driver of the epidemic, of the transmission of the virus. Um, and regret to say that, you know, many of our community uh, are not heeding what we keep on saying over and over and over again, that uh, you have to be careful. This is a silent, it's a silent killer. It's a silent virus. It's um, very often people don't know even how they acquire it from somebody that doesn't have symptoms. So we always have to be on our guard to have the mask and have the physical distance to avoid the social gatherings and hand sanitizing and so on. And I think that that guard has slipped a bit in the Jewish community. Are these waves avoidable if we, as communities, generally behaved? I mean, you can't stop a virus. Well, I think one can certainly quite markedly reduce the intensity of the transmission. I agree with you. It's impossible to totally stop it because humans interact with humans. Look, the only way that you can acquire this virus is from somebody that's infected. That's the only way it can be acquired. We don't believe that surfaces and inanimate things can really play any significant role. So you acquire it from somebody else that's got the infection. And obviously, if you limit contact from person to person, you will limit the spread of the virus. Now, it can't be done 100%. Obviously, it can't be. But the the more that one kind of institutes these preventive measures, the more you can um, reduce the extent of transmission. The wave that we're suddenly we're seeing at the moment, um, do you think it's going to carry on much longer before it peaks and comes down? Do we know? Can we guess? There are some modeling exercises, but, you know, a, mathemati- a mathematical model is only as good as the data you feed into it. And uh, we're still accumulating the data that feeds into it. But the models do predict, and if you look at the at the preceding curves, that we should go on, that we should peak maybe within the next two to three weeks and then come down. But uh, this is quite a steep curve, you know. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not visual, so I can't show you the graph. But the graph shows a very steep increase. And in, I'm talking about Gauteng. Uh, less so in the other provinces, but it probably will develop in other provinces as well. But a steep increase. Um, we haven't hit the peak yet. Uh, we probably will hit the peak at, probably in about the next week or two, and then it'll last for about another couple of weeks and then come down. But this is speculation. This is guess. And as we said just now, this is a virus which does keep us guessing. The other thing that we have noticed in this um, virus is that now more young people are being infected, which wasn't the case in the first virus, in the um, first wave. Yeah, a lot of the clinicians are reporting that, and it does seem to be a prevalent, well, two things. One of them, that household transmissions seem to be a lot more common. In other words, transmission within a household. Before it was just one or two members of the household then stopped. Now it's spreading throughout the household. And also, as you say, younger people are being involved more. I think it's an expression of the higher transmissibility of the beta variant, the variant that is so prevalent uh, in South Africa, our dominant variant. And this increased transmissibility, I think, is expressing itself as going penetrating more 
into sections of the population that weren't so affected in the previous waves, such as the younger people. Okay, Professor, let's talk about the vaccinations. There's so much misinformation out there that people don't really understand the job, that once you've had your back, you're safe. Or Can you just talk us through what is happening? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, with, with all, when, when populations, when communities, when people get into a crisis, and this is a crisis now, one, there, there are, there are three things. One looks for magic cures. That's the one thing. Uh, and one looks for conspiracy theories. That's the other thing. And thirdly, very importantly, there's a blame game. One tries to kind of blame who is responsible. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of the blame is going on to the government, which is unfortunate because I think the government um, has had a lot of challenges with the variant, with the pipeline of vaccines. Um, I'm not saying that they're not above criticism. They certainly are uh, amenable to criticism. And criticism is good because criticism stimulates performance. But the one thing which I do want to say quite strongly is that the criticism must be based on knowledge. It must be evidence-based. And unfortunately, a lot of the criticism is not. Um, there are maybe various agendas which people are driving. And I think this is very unfortunate. I think, to, uh, and unfortunately, it has reached uh, rather grotesque proportions in some situations, which is very unfortunate. It's very sad. It's very hurtful. And uh, I think it's un- uncalled for. I think to some extent may even be malicious. So I, I think it's really important that people get the information from a reliable source. See where you're getting. Is it is it uh, from good scientific uh, origin that people do know what they're talking about? Because, you know, with all respect, and I'm sorry to say this, journalists can be sometimes rather mischievous uh, and um, sometimes even grandstanding. And I, I think this is I think this needs to be you know, people need to have that kind of perspective because it is important. We need to have public cooperation, particularly in a crisis like this. We rely on public trust, public cooperation, and that can really be so easily. It's quite fragile. And that can so easily be damaged by people with mischievous intent. So would you like to put the record straight as it were? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think one of the things which has been, uh, which, which has been talked about, uh, is why the government decided not to use the AstraZeneca vaccine in February. And maybe I can just mention that the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine arrived in the country on the 1st of February, to a lot of fanfare, as you remember. There's a million doses. And then a week later, the results of the South African trial, which was aimed to kind of say, is this vaccine going to be effective and is it going to be safe? And unfortunately, what the trial showed was that the vaccine did not work against our particular variant, which was circulating. Uh, and uh, the, the trial, the, the, uh, the scientific paper concluded, the author said, it does not work against mild or moderate infection. Now, the main thing what we want to look at is how effective is it to prevent severe infection, because that's really what's going to load the hospitals and obviously cause severe illness and mortality. And regrettably, the trial didn't include that. It didn't include older people who could, could be a measure. How is it, how effective is the vaccine? And so we don't, so we don't have that data to say, is the vaccine going to be effective? And also there was laboratory data which showed that probably it may well not be. Um, and I, I won't go into the technic, technicalities, but it, it, uh, it was suggested that it would not work 
against severe infection. So the decision was made by the ministerial advice, together with international consultants, that we should rather substitute with the vaccine, which did show that. And the Johnson Johnson, two days later, so there was only a delay of two days, we substituted the AstraZeneca with the Johnson Johnson vaccine with the healthcare worker rollout. And the Johnson Johnson vaccine had been trialed in South Africa and showed to, in fact, be effective against the variant. About 65% against mild to moderate infection, up to about 85% against severe infection. So we were confident that we were now rolling out a vaccine which was demonstrably effective. But to roll out a vaccine which the signs were that it would not be effective, I think would be bad medicine. I think it would be bad public health. I know that also when I was kind of researching for this, I found an article that you've written in January that also cautions against people thinking that once you've had the vaccine, you are now 100% immune and can carry life as 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 was before. Do you want to just clarify what the vaccine does and how many doses you need, etc.? Sure. Well, what the vaccine does is it mimics the infection. In other words, it introduces a foreign protein to stimulate the immune system. Now, no vaccine, even the very good vaccines like measles, no vaccine is 100% effective. Uh, some vaccines like flu are only about 50 to 60%. And the coronavirus vaccines, uh, all of them, in fact, uh, probably fall somewhere in between. Unfortunately, with our variant, it reduces the efficacy even more. So the vaccine, as I mentioned before, with Johnson Johnson's about 65% effective against mild infection, about 85% uh, and severe infection. So there is quite a considerable gap uh, where it's not going to be protective. Uh, and we know that. We know that a lot of people who have been vaccinated are getting second infections or infections, say, infections after being vaccinated um, or um, infections after having the illness. So there isn't 100% uh, protection by any means. And this is why we're advising people that have been vaccinated to please carry out all the precautions as if you're not being vaccinated. So why get vaccinated in the first place? Well, there, there are two reasons. The one reason is a personal reason. Obviously, it does reduce your chances of getting, of getting an illness. And if you do get the illness, probably more likely it's going to be mild. To mild may be moderate, but more likely to be a mild illness. That's a personal thing. But also, it's a community thing. We're trying to get the majority of the population immunized. Because once we reach herd immunity, when a certain proportion of the population are immune, then we can go back to our pre-COVID existence. But we can't until we reach herd immunity. So that's for two reasons, really, personal and community. So, Professor, basically what we're asking people, and it's not really that difficult, is it, is to keep physical distance, to wear masks, and to sanitize and wash hands as frequently as possible. Absolutely, and to avoid the functions. To avoid people coming together, particularly in closed environments, is not good ventilation because that's where we have what we call the super spreading events. And regrettably, we've had so many of these in the Jewish community. So it really is an appeal to please kind of heed those precautions. They're not difficult, as you say. On that note, Professor, we're going to um, end this interview. But thank you so much again for the time. I really appreciate it. And for clarifying the issues that many people are struggling. There's so much out there. It is hard to make sense if you're not a scientist particularly, of what of the information that's coming out. So thank you so much for clarifying that. Thank you. Thank you, Sharice. Thanks for having me. That was Professor Barry Shrupp, the Chair of Ministerial Advisory Council on the Vaccines.